Today, we will seek to understand and obey James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Please turn there with me in your copy of God's Word. There should be a pew Bible in the seat back in front of you, which you can use if your devices tend to be a distraction during these moments. Please turn there with me. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of God. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Commit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we confess that We do not know what to pray for as we ought, and we confess that this text speaks of us. We fight and quarrel. We do not trust you as we ought, and we do not seek you as we ought. Please forgive us, and please help us. May you, by your Spirit, see to it that not one of your adopted sons or daughters would leave this room today without a renewed zeal to approach you rightly in prayer. And if you would, where you are, in your own heart and mind, even if you do not trust the Lord Jesus, ask Him to show you His glory and grace through His design and desire for us to cry out to Him in prayer. And if you would also, in the same way, Pray for us that our attention would be focused and keen and that no one of us would hinder another in this room from coming to see and savor God's precious revelation of himself. And if you would also pray for me 
as well, that my mind would be sharp and focused and that my heart would be humble and that my words would be clear and helpful and that I would say nothing that would cause anyone to stumble. Father, we do love you and we trust you. Pray that you would do with this time as you will. Please grant us grace that we would love you more. May we be the ones who give you no rest until you restore and revive us again. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the everlasting one. Amen. One of the first major changes that we instituted here at North Star after we Shires moved here four years ago was to reestablish the practice of a regularly scheduled prayer meeting. The prayer meeting has gone through many changes over those four years. Uh, we've had to change the place, the time, the setting, the structure. It was even online for six weeks at one point, but we've never stopped holding it as a church. Prayer, for me, as a pastor and as a Christian, is something that represents a lot of regrets, a lot of mystery, and much hope. When I think about prayer and how and why it works, I'm tempted to be filled with regret. Not only do I fail to pray for what I ought to, but I so gravely underuse this glorious privilege an incredible grace to us as children of God that we are able to do this. Also, when I consider prayer and all that God has done to make it possible, I'm filled with wonder and amazement at the wisdom of our Lord and His intricate and expansive sovereignty. As much as I have grown, however much that is, in my understanding of prayer, I yet grow more in awe at the mysteries at work in it. And yet it's not merely regret and wonder that come to mind. That's, I, I have a lot of hope. When I consider prayer, what it is, when I think about the Lord and ponder anew what the Almighty can do, there's a lot of excitement and hope. There is for the believer so much hope that arises immediately to the surface above all our murky and conflicting emotions and doubt when we consider prayer. This happens when we know that there is indeed one reigning over all heaven and earth whose name is the Lord. He has not only enabled us and authorized us to come to Him with our prayers and concerns, but He has commanded us to do so. This sermon will be, Lord willing, the first in a series of sermons leading up to Sunday the 25th, which is also Christmas this year. I have every year in our time here at North Star dedicated a few sermons to the subject of prayer, and this series will be somewhat different than all of those because we're going to focus on different forms of prayer, prayers of confession, prayers of petition, Prayers of praise, prayers of lament, and for the Lord's Day on the 25th, prayers for the return of Christ, or prayers to hasten the day, which in some ways combine all the forms of prayer into one. 
My main goal, though, and my main objective in this message is to encourage you to pray. That's why the title of this sermon is so short and stated in the imperative. Pray. But more than that, I want to be part of God's plan to cause you to pray. And even more than that, I hope this message will serve our church in beginning a fundamental shift in our priorities in our practices. So now let us consider the text. Verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. As we consider these three first verses together as a whole, we need to remember that the whole context of this passage is driving at our posture in relating to God primarily in prayer. That's the context. Coming to Him for what we need. And it's interesting to me that James kind of backs into a discussion on prayer by first drawing attention to the church's lack of unity or peace. If you think about it, James can make these statements about the church without any real knowledge of a particular issue. Maybe James knew about some issues in the various churches that were scattered through the Roman Empire after Stephen was murdered in Jerusalem. But more likely, he can project or anticipate that these are the kinds of problems that will crop up in every church. What is the problem? What is the problem he's drawing attention to? Passions in conflict. Ungodly or even godly things that we want leading to fighting and quarreling in the church. What is fascinating to me about this observation or this statement of fact from James is that it is in the context of prayer. So part of the point seems to be that if there are quarrels in the church, if there is disunity in the church, if there are unresolved tensions, if there is bickering, if there is unkindness being exchanged, there's an attitude of bitterness growing. If these things or things similar to them are happening in any given church, then understand that prayer is not only the solution, it absolutely is, but prayerlessness or polluted prayers are part of the cause or at least happen right alongside the development of those problems. Any horizontal issue we have, meaning in our relationships with other people within the body of Christ or even elsewhere, are ultimately rooted in a vertical issue between you and the Lord. Our desires are not aligned with that which pleases the Lord. In short, You want what you should not have. And even when you want things that you should, there are very often ungodly motives behind your desires for those things. That's the claim of this text. This passage is often used in biblical counseling settings to show that 
So many of our sins, in fact, maybe even all of them, are rooted in that seedbed of ungodly desires, polluted desires. But the context of this passage is that of a local church, a gathering of believers. The disunity and lack of peace creates a stench. It is foul to the Lord and to each other. Part of this is shown that the context of worship, the context of gathering to praise the Lord together and and the disunity that can exist there, part of that is shown because of the strong allusion to the story of Cain and Abel. That's what that whole murder business is about. That's what he's alluding to. What was the context of Cain's covetousness? It was the context of worship. It was the context of sacrifice. It was the context of blessing and acceptance with God. So, this shows us that our passions, that is, what we want and how we're working to get it, what we pray for, and peace in the body of Christ are all connected. It's fascinating in and of itself. If our passion, that is, what we are seeking, does not honor the Lord, then we will not pray or we will pray wrongly and it will lead to disunity and fighting and quarreling in the body of Christ. The awful truth is, brothers and sisters, as much and as often as I talk about peace and unity and love within the body of Christ, the cause of the opposite, namely disunity, discord, and fights, is not in bad preaching, bad programs, or bad philosophy of ministry. It's in ungodly passions, evidenced by our prayerlessness or polluted prayers. So here's a few ways a few questions, rather, to sum up this first point. First, is part of the reason you struggle to pray rooted in godless or ungodly desires or plans? If you can't imagine Jesus dying so as to enable you to do it, you probably shouldn't pray for it. If what you're doing and what you have made your life about have little to nothing to do with seeking the kingdom of God, it should come as no surprise to you that you struggle to pray or that your prayers are ineffective. Second, since all these things are connected, right? Peace in the body of Christ, our prayers, our passions, since all those are intermingled, then what does it say about your supposed devotion to the Lord if you think you have a great prayer life and are close to God when there is fighting and quarreling between you and a brother or sister in Christ? What does that say? When Jesus says, leave your gift there and first go be reconciled to your brother, He means it. The point is, Seems to be the Lord's not very interested in or excited about you coming to Him if you're at odds with another member of His family. One of His children. Third question. What work are you willing to do in your heart to root out passions and desires that are ungodly? This is amazing. This text implies that Even ungodly desires can masquerade as good ones and lead us to pray. 
We struggle enough to pray as it is. But some, according to this passage, what is even bringing us to our knees are ungodly passions. That requires work to root out. What work are you willing to do? Need some sense of urgency regarding serious heart examination. Now I want to look at the second half of verse 2 into verse 3. Prayer changes things. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There are a lot of strange things out there said about prayer. A whole lot of very odd things. Much of it wrong, some of it heretical, and most of it downright silly. But one of the things that easily slips into our minds is that prayer actually doesn't change anything. Especially those of us with a particular theological background. What we settle for is something like this. Well, God already knows what He's going to do. So our praying is just mainly for us to help us line our hearts up with what He already wants that would already happen if we pray or not. I mean, how else do you resolve the tension in your mind? But if that were the case, this text would not exist. You do not have because you do not ask. That doesn't mean what I've already planned to do will still happen regardless of if you pray or not. There's a false binary happening in most of what people say to solve this tension. On the one hand, you have statements like prayer actually works or prayer changes things. And on the other hand, you have statements like, well, God is completely sovereign and people feel like they have to pick. We'll see this more in a minute, but part of the solution, maybe the entirety of the solution, is found in the statement, the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. But, once we understand that God's main heart towards us, even in granting us access and welcome to pray, is that we would begin to act like His children, really. That we would begin to behave as the children of God that we really are then you begin to see that prayer is so integrated with the meaning of sonship or daughtership, even though the sonship motif isn't here in these ten verses. We'll talk about the, what the main analogy is here in a minute. Otherwise, when you read the Gospels and you come upon teachings from Jesus about prayer, it would be like Jesus is changing subjects unless the access to God... And the desire He has for us to pray and be involved in the governing of the universe is just Jesus changing subjects. We know it's not. He's not clumsy in His communication. It's all part of the same thing that we've been granted through our relationship with Him. If you will permit me to say it this way, one of the reasons you are saved, one of the primary goals of God in adopting you is so that you can have this direct connection in your prayers to the very heart of God. It is the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
It is instinctive, the implication of that text. I know that some of you might be concerned that what I'm saying or implying is too close, far too close to the prosperity gospel, so-called, or the name it, claim it teaching, or the word of faith teaching, and all those are wrong and silly. It's easy to, to dismiss those out of hand by the second part of this passage. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. If we are even asking for those right things, but with the wrong motives or passions, there's no reason to expect our prayers will be effective. That's just basic exegesis from the text. We can dismiss all those analogies and theologies. Now, I do want to give you an illustration, though, about how prayer works and how it does change things, even with a sovereign God who's ordained not only the end goal, but the means to get there. The best illustration I could think of from my own life is trying to help my daughter learn how to read. I'm sitting there with the Bob book or whatever it is that I was helping her read, and I knew the answer. I knew what that word was on the page. But what benefit would it be for me to just give that to her without her first going through the learning process to come to the right answer? That's what prayer functions like. The idea, I think, that's at work, brothers and sisters, is that God is unwilling to move forward until we learn to ask for that which we should be asking for. And so, yes, there are blessings that He knows you need. He knows the answer, but that He refuses to give to you until you learn what you need to learn, to ask for what you ought to ask for with the right motives. And all of us together, if any of you have actually engaged in the teaching of a class with multiple students, one of them can have the right answer. But as a teacher, you'll tell them, be quiet. I know you know the right answer. Let's wait until all of them come along. So that's why even in a group setting, a few of us might have the right answer, but God's not going to answer until we grow as we need to in coming to understand what we need to learn. This whole life is about discipleship, even in your prayers. So yes, God knows where He's taking this whole thing. He knows what you need, but you have not because you ask not. We are not humble students in His classroom. So a few questions to press this point a little further. First, just very simply, does your prayer life show that you actually believe this text? That you have not because you ask not? In what you ask for and in asking for it, and in why we're asking for it, is it I have not because I ask not. And I ask and do not receive because my motive in asking does not please the Lord. Or is it, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. I guess I just, just get ready for it and pray because He commanded me to. And that's our posture. That is until things go really bad and then we, out of practice, coming to Him, petitioning and grieving in our hearts, very hopeful maybe, but we have lost confidence that prayers actually matter. Second question, 
Are you a humble student in God's classroom? Going back to that illustration of the Lord working to bring us all along. Are you content to just sit there and say nothing, even though your master wants you to learn and grow and for us all to learn and grow together? Are you applying yourself to grow in your understanding of His character and how His Spirit is at work to lead to God-pleasing prayers? Are you striving yourself? Are you helping others to come into their inheritance as part of God's royal family to be involved in the governing of the universe? This is practice. Do you believe these glorious things about prayer? What would your actual prayer life say to answer that? And so we come to verse 4. Adulterous friendship with the world and our prayers. You adulterous people. Try to grow a church with statements like that. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is a fascinating passage for so many reasons. Keep in mind the context is about our desires, peace within the body of Christ, and our prayers. He's driving this point further after the end of verse 3 to say that these desires suspended on our passions is actually akin to spiritual adultery or is spiritual adultery. Very important to keep that connection between 4 and 3 or else we'll think that James is just changing the subject multiple times. One of the reasons we don't pray as we ought is that it's hard for us, deep down, to not be embarrassed by what we ask for. The content and the motive that we have, we know, deep down, isn't pleasing to the Lord. to use a passage from a sermon I preached recently, if everything we ask for is not only that which the Gentiles seek, but it's motivated from a heart that is the very same as the motive of the Gentiles in seeking them, then it's no wonder we don't pray, and it's no wonder that our prayers are ineffective. Consider what James says in chapter 5. This is, this is meant to bring contrast to this idea of, of idolatrous hearts, spiritual idolatry, adultery, as even we're praying. I mean, that's a thought. That's what it's saying. Versus even very audacious prayers that are prayed without that corruption. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. How many of you would blush at praying such a prayer? Or think immediately in your mind, God's not going to answer this. Or just something of the same size. 
Well, if you were to do so for the wrong reasons, like for power or fame or to prove a point or to get ahead, those things that usually motivate our prayers anyway, no matter how much we try to baptize them, then obviously it would be wrong for you to pray such a prayer. Lord, make it stop raining. The reason why Elijah, in his prayer here, is not falling prey to what James is guarding against in friendship with the world and corrupt desires, and why it's not inappropriate for him to pray such a prayer, and why it was even right and needful that Elijah should pray these things is that it was for the sake of the people of God and rooted in God's faithfulness to His promises. Elijah was not interested in starting a rebellion against Ahab and Jezebel. He was not interested in influencing financial policy at the national level. Elijah was not interested in fame or glory or his career or his income. His sole purpose was the repentance of the people of God to forsake their idols. Fidelity to the Lord was his number one concern. And so he pled with the Lord in that fervor for the fidelity of God's people. Lord, cut off the storehouses of heaven. Maybe this will break through to them. So, Is our desire that the people of God have fidelity in their covenant with Yahweh? Is that the motive in our prayers? Do we get anything close to that? Find out how your prayer for a better job could mean the same thing. That's living life for the kingdom of God. That your success means the success of God's kingdom. Just as one example. So a few questions again to wrap this up. First, are you living in such a way? Are you striving to have a pattern of life where your success means the success of God's kingdom, the advance of the gospel, etc.? Second, can you connect your prayers, even the small ones, in some way to your pursuit of holiness? Third, have you considered the fact that your prayerlessness might be rooted in the sad reality that most of our prayers, even for the right things objectively, are rooted in our friendship with the world? I mean, this is heavy, but I mean, that's, that's verse 4, right? He's calling the church adulterers. There's no way to get around the heavy blow. And so we come to Verse 5. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? So we see divine jealousy and His Spirit at work. This is a curious statement for many, many reasons. And one of the things that complicates it more is that there is no specific text in the Old Testament that James is referring to. What you need to know about your Bibles, in the New Testament especially, is that the quotation marks are not original. None of them are. They didn't have punctuation marks. We're just 
adding them there because we think that he's quoting something specifically, but it's more likely that he's summarizing and synthesizing a lot of passages and theological themes. One of the central questions that we can ask to help us clarify what he means is this. Is he talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, Yahweh himself, third person of the Trinity, or is he talking about the human spirit? Our souls, as it were. It seems to me, based on the context, that he is talking about the Holy Spirit. And the ESV, I think, needs to capitalize the word spirit here. I think this is one of the few places the ESV gets one of these judgment call kinds of things wrong. But the analogy at play here, all that theology that James is summarizing and synthesizing, is not PG or G rated. I think it is clear. Many seem hesitant to draw these lines of connection. We have terms like jealousy, yearning, adultery, and then nearby terms like friendship and drawing near. These are all intimate, relational terms. The imagery at play here in this statement is God's jealousy for His people as a spouse would have jealousy for His beloved. If you're familiar with the theology or themes that play in the prophet Ezekiel and others of the prophets like Hosea, you know exactly what I'm talking about and that it's not G or PG rated. The Lord relates Israel's friendship with the world as we draw the lines of connection relating it to spiritual adultery of the most deplorable and gross kind. And what plays out in the prophet Ezekiel especially is God's strong, mighty, ferocious, holy, pure love to purify, purge, and yes, even punish His people, His spouse for her profane, perpetual, lewd, and hardened prostitution and adultery. Here's a picture of all these things with even some of the same terms at play in, John, in James 4 found in Ezekiel 16. And I've, I've tried to tone this down a little bit, but there's no way to do that fully. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, I will judge you as a woman, as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath on you and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will be no more angry because you have not remembered the days of your youth but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to your abominations? The yearning of our Lord 
over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us and the jealousy with which he yearns for spiritual fidelity is as him, with him, as our divine spouse. And interestingly, even all the way back in the prophecy that Ezekiel was given, it is the Spirit of God who is sent to purify His people and to make sure that they turn back from their adultery and to give them a new heart so that they would not continue forever as spiritual prostitutes. From Ezekiel 36, Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. All of these intimate ideas are uncomfortable for us to hear. So taken in this way, especially considering what James is saying, the Spirit could be the object of divine jealousy. He's placed His Spirit within us, and would we abuse the Spirit of adoption using that access He's granted to us as sons and daughters of God to spend it on our pleasures, our passions? Or he could also be, the spirit that is, could also be the expression of divine jealousy. What does God do when he desires his spouse to be faithful to him? He sends his spirit to conform and transform us so that we would walk in faithfulness before him. Or both. The object of divine jealousy and the expression of divine jealousy. And I think here's the point in three parts. Number one, our sins, being spiritual prostitution and adultery, are repulsive to the Lord. Two, He sends His Spirit to clean us from the pollution of our lewd spiritual prostitution and gives us a new spirit so that we will grow in our fidelity to Him. And three, now because of His Spirit, He yearns even more jealously over us that we would continue as a pure and faithful spouse to Him. This is uncomfortable imagery with uncomfortable implications, even with cutting out the more sharp statements from Ezekiel 16. But we must understand this, brothers and sisters. What James is saying in connecting all this imagery together is that if our intent in our prayers is to just spend it on our passions, then it is like a wayward wife asking her husband to fund her exploits in the red light district. So let me ask us all, if you are being truly honest, as honest as you will be made to be on Judgment Day, how many of your prayers are rooted in your idolatry of comfort, respect, safety, peace? Whatever you would fill in there. How many 
of our prayers are actually out of our idolatrous hearts. This is why this text is heavy. He, James says to the people of God, you're doing this, you're praying for these things to spend it on your passions. This is adultery. What are we to do? The solution is not to stop praying, but rather to prepare and pray more. In this uncomfortable analogy of the divine spouse, the solution to our unfaithfulness is not to close ourselves off from Him, but rather to come to Him more eagerly. And that eager approach, that eager return to the Lord, that one who has for us a holy fire of divine jealousy is exactly what we're commanded to do in the next verses, verses 6 through 10. These are the kinds of things that we need to do in order to be faithful, to have that union with Him that He has saved us to have. Verses 6 through 10, prepare and pray. Verse 6, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So what now? If this is the way things are in our hearts and how the Lord sees us as spending this access, this glorious access He's given us to pray to Him. I, I said that the father-son motif isn't in these passages. It's, it's, it's husband and wife. So we together as God's people relate to God as the Lord Himself, as our divine husband. Individually, us as sons and daughters directly as Father, but all of us together as spouse. So what are we to do if we, if we are in fact this unfaithful bride spending this access He's granted to us on our passions? We need God's grace. This right here, verse 6, is the better hope of the new covenant. The better hope of the new covenant is that the Lord does not respond to us in the same way that He did to Israel. Rather, He gives more grace to us together and to us individually. When we, in our hearts, evidenced by our lack of prayer or asking things wrongly, when we show that we are friends with the world, And when we commit spiritual adultery against God, when we cheat on Him in our hearts, what does He do? Does He send us into exile? He gives more grace. This is astounding, but it is also terrifying. Because His grace is given on purpose. His grace is meant to increase the pressure so that you would align your hearts with that which pleases Him. It's not cheap grace. It's meant to do something in your life and to cause you 
to have desires and prayers that are pleasing to Him. We're meant to have this kind of heart attitude, these kinds of thoughts and these prayers that would promote peace in the body of Christ and that we would be yielding to Him and no longer friends with the world, no longer seeking the things that the Gentiles do in the same ways that they seek them. That we would cast the idols of our hearts away from us and pummel them into dust. So what actions then? is God's grace towards us aimed to produce. There are 11 imperatives here, depending on how you count. I've bunched five of them together, so we're left with about seven, depending on how you count. The first is, submit to God. Maybe some of us have harbored pride in our hearts for far too long, and the solution for you is not yet to humble yourselves, That's saved to the last. It's to submit yourselves to God. Humility for you, if you have resisted submitting yourselves to God, is a destination that doesn't quite make sense to you and you cannot see clearly. You know how I know why? Because you haven't yet submitted to God. To put yourself under Him. You are right, I am wrong, and I don't even see all the ways that I'm wrong. My definition of humility and holiness is all probably wrong. That's submission to God. You know you should read your Bible more. You know you should pray more. You know you should seek His kingdom more. You know that you should be accountable to other brothers and sisters in Christ. You know you should confess sin. You know you should give more of your time, talents, and other resources to serving Him. But when it comes down to it, you don't really want to. And you don't. This is what it means to submit to God. And maybe you've been so ingrained in your thinking and your theology that you've got it all justified in your mind how you're behaving. So where to even start with such a mess in your head and in your soul? Maybe we should get together and pray. We need to cry out to the Lord. Only He can solve such a mess within us. We're also told to resist the devil. Maybe some of you don't put up much of a fight against all the temptations and lives of the world, the flesh, and the devil. A perfect picture of your resistance, if it could be called that, is like the house built by the first and second little piggies with sticks and straw. You want to put up a better resistance, but you find no energy to do so. And your mental and physical strength is overpowered with the first or second or third huff and puff. You have an inkling of an idea of what it would look like if you were a more resistant Christian. One that does not always give in to temptation or that particular failing. But you've maybe given up on the fight. Maybe you've resigned to what you think is truth. That you will always be this vulnerable. You will always be the sinful. And the enemy will always have this level of victory in your your life. You're trapped. What is to be done? 
maybe we should get together and pray. We need to cry out to the Lord. Only He can solve such a mess within us. We're also told, draw near to God. Maybe some of us feel very far from the Lord. Maybe we remember a time when things were close and sweet with Him, where His Word was a delight to us, and we found prayer, even long extended prayer, easy and strength-giving and joyful, but those days seem like a cruel trick of nostalgia to remind us how bad things are now in your relationship with the Lord. You would like to be close to Him, but especially as you get older, with more responsibilities, more kids, more worries, He not only seems far off, but maybe you've forgotten altogether what it even means to delight yourself in the Lord. And what is worse, maybe it comes as a shock to you. You've maybe given up or don't even desire to draw near to Him. What you want is help with the stuff of life, the chaos, the stuff that's going on. Nearness to God, sure, cool, wonderful if it happens, whatever that means, but what we strive for, what we seek for, is to have a peaceful, well-supplied, trial-free life. Is that not what the content of our prayers often proves? What's even more dangerous, if you, if you sense that and know that you're not near to God, you might be in a better place than some of us because some of us think that we're very near to God, but all it is is that we're emotionally moved by beautiful ideas and it's not nearness to God. So what, would sh- what should we do about this lack of desire to draw near or confusion about what that even means? To say nothing of the lack of nearness itself, maybe we should get together and pray, to cry out to the Lord, to show us how we may draw near to Him and to rekindle the desire to do so. We're told to cleanse our hands. This is not talking about physically washing your hands, though please wash your hands. This is talking about a fundamental shift from doing what is sinful to doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. When you do not do what pleases Him, your hands become unclean. Some of you may need to stop spending in the way you spend. Some of you may need to stop investing so much time in things that will only hurt your rewards in heaven. Some of you need to stop eating, drinking, or consuming, or using things in a way that lets them control you. Some of you need to stop putting yourself in situations that lead to all kinds of sin. Some of you need to stop sinning against your spouse in ways that are killing your relationship. And some of you need to stop building your wall of self-justification for the way you act. And even as I say these things, does the lawyer within you rise up to question how I could say such things? If you feel convicted, keep in mind that I'm not naming you, but the Holy Spirit might be. 
Some of you need to stop building and justifying your clique of friends and excluding others. Some of you may need to stop looking down on other members of our church. Some of you may need to stop thinking that you're better than others. Some of you need to get outside of your preferences and your ideas and your aptitude for criticism. Some of you may need to stop being content with a life that is not at all involved in the real ministry of relationships within the body of Christ. And instead of all that, you need to start doing the things that please the Lord. Not out of a legal spirit, but because this is the spiritual fruit. This is fidelity to Him. That which He has sent His Spirit into our hearts to produce. That we would bear fruit for God. Stop offering up to Him prayers in, rooted in friendship with the world. The problem is, we don't even know what the difference is sometimes between friendship with the world and desires that honor the Lord. We're confused out of our minds. We have dirty hands and a heart that is not transfixed on the Lord. We don't even know sometimes what it means to wash our hands in a spiritual sense. What should we do about that? Maybe we should get together and pray. We need to cry out to the Lord. Come and teach us how to have clean hands again. These changes, these 11 imperatives, are not the result of some new program or some new book or some new focus or some new sermon series even. God must come and produce these things in us. So the only thing we have is to cry out to Him. We're also commanded to purify our hearts. Maybe some of us have bitterness in our hearts. Maybe we don't know that it's there. Or maybe we've even forgotten what it's like to not be bitter. Some of you may not have much love in your hearts. And somehow, because of your age, your life stage, or how others have treated you, you feel like that's okay. And you don't really want to do anything about it to change it. Some of you may be fault finders. Not out of love, but out of malice or fear or pride or all those things mixed. Maybe you don't even see your aptitude to fault finding and you don't see how burdensome or problematic that is for the people that love you. Some of you, having dirty hearts, look at your sin as no big deal, but that other person's sin as a huge problem. Or maybe sin doesn't bother you at all. Parents, what bothers you more? That sin resides in your child's heart or their behavior that gives you a bad day? Some of you may be harboring hatred, dislike, judgment, unkindness, indifference, or ill will in your heart towards brothers and sisters in this room. And if someone were to confront you on it, all you'd want to talk about is what they did or how silly or idiotic or not understanding they are. 
Our hearts are dirty and need purifying because our passions are at war and we fight and quarrel. I don't think I'm coming down too hard on any of these things because this is the solution and I love you too much not to tell you that this is what the Scripture commands us to do and this is what the Scripture says is the solution. We require a deep cleansing even as the people of God. It cannot be just that original washing of regeneration. If these things are so, or even if I'm just barely close to the truth on any point, what are we to do? Maybe we should gather as the people of God and cry out to Him in prayer to begin to do these things for us, that which we cannot do on our own. We need the Lord to come and clean our hearts and show us where the cleaning needs to start. If you have young children who make a mess of their rooms, you know that this is one of the things. You tell them, go clean your room, and they just stand and stare at the mess, and they don't, know what to, they don't even know how to start. That's us with the mess in our lives. So we need Him. We need Him to come and guide us to even start in the purification of our hearts. We're told to lament. And this is actually five imperatives bunched into one. Look at what he says. This is amazing. Be wretched, mourn, weep. And then a form of an imperative, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. If you compare it just in number of words, this is what he spends the most time telling us to do. The world is not lacking in sadness, generally. Rather, the world lacks sadness of the right kind. We are sad about so many things. But often we will not allow ourselves to be sad about the things that we ought to lament. Perhaps we, even as the people of God, we try to soothe ourselves too quickly to get out of that posture of sadness and down. But when was the last time that you were truly broken in your heart over your sin? And let that alone, because we can feel sad and sorry for the sin we've committed because of the mess it makes in our lives. When was the last time that you were so grieved over your brother or sister's sin That you made yourself wretched? Maybe we, in our preference to be happy or to be sad about the wrong things, forget what the heart of God actually is. Maybe the idea, the concept that sin grieves The Holy Spirit is a foreign concept to us. We know it theologically. We can quote the verse. Maybe you will weep for how your sin has devastated your life or because things are not as you would like because of your sin. But have you ever wept bitterly or ugly cried? some say, because of how awful and far from the Lord your heart is right now. Like, not because of some particularly grave sin. 
I think if any of us were drawn into some particularly grave sin, like real adultery, that we would be grieved and we would probably weep if we're genuinely Christians. But these desires, this friendship with the world, this seeking the things the Gentiles seek, does that grieve us at all? Have you ever willingly turned your joy into gloom or your laughing into mourning because of spiritual adultery? Maybe some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. So what are we to do about this disconnect, our stubbornness to be happy when we should mourn and our stubbornness to be sad about the wrong things? And all the while, the church languishes, the lights go out, and this long defeat of this failed evangelical experiment in this nation comes to ruin. Maybe we should get together and pray and cry out to the Lord together about these things. We need Him to break our hearts before we can rightly ask Him to heal them. We don't even know where to start. We need Him. And lastly, He tells us to humble yourselves. The last imperative He gives us. I don't know if He saves it for last because humility only becomes a clear destination after we go through these other things. I think that might be the case. Like, How can you actually pursue humility and humble yourself if you're not sorrowful over sin. That seems to not make sense. But either way, as water only runs down to the lowest point, so God's grace only flows towards the humble. Proud people may still get grace, but it only comes in the form of opposition. He opposes the proud. And here's the problem. So many of us are so ingrained in our pride, perhaps, that we would not recognize the path of humility if God came down and led us by the hand to it. We are often the kicking and screaming type, not wanting to humble ourselves. And worse than that, you may come into this building, even into this room, maybe even into a prayer meeting, and you put on a humble exterior. You put on an act so that no one will see, no one will know, and no one will confront you. What are we to do about all this when maybe we don't even have the humility or clarity of understanding to make any kind of legitimate start? Maybe we should pray. It is required that we should get together and pray about these things. We must pray all the more diligently together. This is the sermon series, this message on prayer, an attempt to help us all retaliate against what I do think is an organized attack from the world, the flesh, and the devil against our church. Will you pray? We need the Lord. Only He has the power and will and love 
and mercy to save us. Pray. Father, we need You. We don't even know how much we need You. Show us our weakness. Show us the hope of prayer, that You are in fact our only hope, that You welcome us to come into Your presence, offering up to You prayers and desires and a passion that pleases You with the purity and faithfulness of Your people. Again, might we be found to be the ones who give You no rest until You restore and revive us again. In Jesus' name, Amen.